Good morning. I'm glad uh, Ian opened the blinds. Mother Earth decided to give us a first snow that should be recognized. Dogen wrote that chant when he was 40, the one we just read. He was 27 when he wrote the chant that we chant at um, service. And the two strike me because at 27, he's kind of like, let's get going, everybody. And um, by 40, there's a reflective humility and gratitude that um, is the spirit behind these words. At least that's what I hear. I want to talk about um, a few things, but one thing I want to talk about is what we do. You know, many things come to us during retreat. Pain comes, insight comes, responses to pain and insight come. That's the lion's share. But um, we care for it all in the same way. And I think, you know, we, um, we talk about taking care of pain, and we talk certainly about taking care of dukkha and our responses to it. Sometimes we don't talk that much about taking care of insight. And insight can become dukkha when we don't take care of it, very quickly, almost instantly, actually. I had something happen to me. I, some of you may have had a, you know, an interesting time these last few days. <laughs> I did too. So on, um, this all ended up in good news, but but it. Uh, but I was able to learn a lot. Early, um, early, at the beginning, basically, of my sitting, I got a message that my sister, who I'm very close with, may possibly have ovarian cancer. And they were, they were, um, it was very questionable, and, and things didn't look good from x-rays. They had to do surgery to find out. But in the end, she didn't. It's not cancerous, and, and it ended up good news. But for me, you know, there was a two-day period, and Sashin days are not like normal days. Sashin days are like a month each. Um, so um, I was with the feelings in my body around my sister possibly having ovarian cancer. And there was something, I was speaking with Tia about this. All kinds of feelings came up, but one really clear feeling came up. And I've been trying to, you know, I've been coming, discerning how I would put it into words, but the, the best word that I can give to it is a, is a roar. It's not um, a roar against. It's not... Um, 
and I'll talk more later about that roar, but, but it was a very clear roar. And, um, you know, Tia mentioned that Suzuki Roshi, when his first student died, the woman he was going to um, actually transmit to, she died of cancer, young, very young. And he roared over her. He actually let it out. And I've been s with some of you when you've lost people close to you and you've let that roar out. Some of our cultures support expressing that roar, some don't. But uh, I was feeling it and I was watching really closely and I think this is, I was watching really closely to see what was going on and I could see like curls of smoke under the door waiting for me to open the door to a fire. I could see that there was a potentiality for bitterness. I could see that there was potentiality for rage. I could see my mind wanting to start blaming the people in my family who treated her so poorly over the years. I could see lots of things wanting to happen. But, um, but fortunately, I was in Sashin, so it was easier to just stay with that feeling. And insight came from it, but to, to build on Laura's talk, you know, the way of taking care of it was exactly as she said, which was to give space for it. You know, the, 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 the Bodhisattva Paramitas, the training course of the Bodhisattvas, the it's brilliant. It's brilliant because the very first thing that had to happen was to give it its due, to give it its place, to not steal from that feeling its rightful place in the world. And then, you know, there's the smoke curling under the doors, so have to be ethically upright. Not let an object come up where I'm going to throw that energy recklessly at something. But to be very, very clear that this roar is not about any particular thing or person. And it's not to be confused with something that Katagiri Roshi calls a silent scream under everything. The silent scream Katagiri Roshi was talking about is underneath all of our adaptive strategies and all our good ego behavior is this scream that wants to be done with separation. That scream may be associated with this, but it's not quite the same. And so then there's being patient with its lastingness. It's just being there. And the effort in this case, the fourth paramita, the effort in this case around this particular 
thing really was so deeply tied to the fifth paramita of concentration and presence, which was just to be still and stable and bring the effort to that again and again and again and again. There was, fortunately, and I think, you know, the Buddha said to both recognize when we fail and to recognize when we succeed. It's so easy to recognize when we fail. You know, once, I mean, we love to beat ourselves up for failing. And, um, and, when, and, and, and the funny thing is, is when we do bolster ourselves around success, it's usually like not really the success where we're succeeding in practice. It's some kind of dukkha success. But, um, but to really look at the way we succeed in the practice sometimes, and it's not even we succeeding, that the practice is succeeding through us, that the training is culminating. And um, there was that stability there. And so wisdom came out of that. And insight came out of that into the nature of what this is. And what struck me, and part of this is because of what people were bringing to practice discussion. One person asked me a question in practice discussion which ended up becoming a koan for the last, since then for me, which is, um, they asked, where does your confidence come from? And my first thought was, I don't have any confidence. <laughs> but, that, but, the, but that's not what I said. What I said was zazen, which is a little easy, but not untrue. Um, it really is, it really has been that. It really has been my, the body beginning to trust in a deep way that's underneath any story I have about it. And the mind slowly realizing what it, what, what's actually going on and not grabbing into all the stories about it, about my life. But... Um, but something actually deeper than that, I think, is, um, is going on in terms of confidence. Another person, kind of tongue-in-cheek, um, said, you know, what are we selling here? What is, the, what is the end game of all this Zen business of going into this pain and being with it? Good question, too. It's not always um, a kind of skippy happiness. Certainly not. Although I do think there is a deep joy that comes. But I think it's something more to do with this roar. This ability to uh, be settled, deeply authentic, with one's life, completely. And the confidence that comes, you know, what, 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 I, what I feel this roar is, was for me, and I, I feel it shows up in a lot of places, is um, it's love. You could say it's grief. But grief is a very complex word with a lot of, you know, we have stages and everything else. It involves many things. 
and certainly there's grief. But more than that, there's, um, there's a rising up in the face of the dukkha of the world, what we call karuna, you know, that we translate as compassion, but it gets a little lost because there's an active aspect to the word karuna that isn't necessarily in compassion. It's a desired end, dukkha. But even before that, there's just a recognition, a deep desire to meet unflinchingly the suffering of human life. In oneself and in everyone else. And there is, it is not a quivering, bashful kind of energy. Love is not a quivering, bashful kind of energy. I have actually never, in my experience, known anything more confident than what we would call karuna in Buddhism or what we might call this universal love or desire to end suffering that the way we use love in Buddhism in America. And it's, um, it's funny because this, this, maybe we've all had this experience where it speaks through you. At a certain point, you're kind of clear. And love comes through. And then something, you say something that's coming from that, not from me, not from any kind of personal anything. And, um, and I have to laugh because I'll sit there and I'll be giving a talk, or I'll be talking to somebody and I'll say something and it'll come from this love place and I'll thought, now I have to live up to that. <laughs> you know, there was, there, it, I didn't come up with that and it came out and people saw it come out of my mouth. <laughs> now I have to live up to it. But the, um, so we're with these, and so we're with these deep, profound energies. And sometimes something comes up, and we realize that a thing we thought was pain was love. And we realize that a thing we thought was absolutely real is not. We even start to realize crazy things like there's nothing in our life that is, there's nothing in me that is against me. Even the habits that are not so skillful anymore were lovingly, were loving guardians at one point in our life. So we take care of all of these things with the practice of the paramitas. And, 
And this, this pain is love and that which is real is maybe not real in the way we thought it was. And this separation that we do sometimes between karma and insight, I want to have insight and I want to sit here in my insight and be happy. And then we treat the arising of our karmic conditioning as something that's not insight. Okay, just at face value, this doesn't make any sense, right? If we're able to see our karmic conditioning clearly, if we're able to experience it fully, that's kind of some insight. That's not, not a thing. It may not feel great. It may be deeply humbling. But the intimacy with our karma is what gives, what unfolds into insight. And sometimes it releases in a way where we go, ah. But then that ah becomes something that we want to hold. And then we're back into the whole seeing the karma thing again. Hopefully. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we keep going after the insight and don't recognize that's actually a kind of karmic condition grasping. You know, the, 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 I love case eight, the Baijan's Fox in Book Serenity, because I just don't think it's the best story for illuminating this. And for those of you who don't know it, there, there's a monk who shows up. There, there's a teacher. Baijan is a teacher. He's giving a talk every night. And this old man shows up in the back of the room over and over and over again. And finally, Bajan goes up and says, who are you? And the old man says, I used to be living at the time of Kashapa Buddha. And someone came up to me and says, said, does a greatly trained or achieved sage, um, are they beyond cause and effect? And he turned around, meaning, are they beyond their karma? And he turned around and said, said, yes. And then he became a wild fox body for 500 lifetimes. Now, the wild fox is a symbol of something that is only caught in its karma with no ability to step back from it and do anything about it. It's just a conditioned being. And... Um, and so now he's a human, and again, and he says, and it's lovely, because the way he says it, he said, could you, I think it's often translated as, could you turn a word on my behalf? So already there's a lot more humility after 500 fox lifetimes. And, um, and Bai Zhang says, um, a greatly trained or achieved or an awake sage does not, is not blind to karma. So our conditioning is there, and we are not blind to it. We don't use insight to blind ourselves to our karma. When we have a wonderful experience we want to stay in, we're using it to blind ourselves to our karma. And we're generating more
more conditioning and more dukkha and more suffering underneath that desire to stay in that place. You all know all this. We say this all the time. But it took me a really long time. (laughs) Still learning this at more and more subtle levels. So when we have these, I'm going to go back to the confidence piece, because when we have this, um, you know, we talk about emptiness in this, in the Zen tradition quite a bit. And there is a, um, it's a quarter till, quarter till. There's a, there's a, um, A recognition that the phenomena that are arising in the mind, that the whole mind is, um, that the there there we thought isn't there. That they aren't solid, that they're conditioned, that they're always moving, that we can't put our loyalty in them, we cannot rest in them as solid, reliable objects. It's just we have to give up the ground. We have to give up the ground of thinking we can root ourselves in... um, in the phenomena that to us feel good and away from the ones that feel bad. And there is a kind of confidence when that's realized that that just can't be done anymore. There's a confidence that arises in that everything that's in the way of settling in our lives, all the habits we have, all the thoughts we have that are just constantly churning up reasons why we just can't be here. We kind of kick the legs out from under that a little bit when there are certain insights like that. And, um, but as I was considering this question about confidence and considering it with my body, because I don't trust my intellect telling me about things on its own. Um, I realized there is a there's a confidence that even comes when those decks are cleared. There's another kind of confidence, and it is this, it is this love. It is an affirming confidence that um, knows what to do. Not only knows what to do, can actually do it. That, to me, is something that has shifted profoundly in Zen practice. Is Before Zen practice, I thought... I knew what to do, but really didn't. And I couldn't follow up on it usually anyway. It was just too difficult to see it through, what I thought was the better thing to do, and so on. But when love is present, there is this enormous capacity to know what to do and see it through. And it's not personal. It's just not a personal thing. I can't do that. I actually don't know how to do that. And that is what is fascinating to me about this. I don't know how to do what is happening. I have no idea. And if we can let ourselves... 
not know, really not know how to do what's happening. Just fully sit here and not know how to do what's happening. And let it go, let go, knowing how to do this. And when we let go of that, you know, this comes from discernment. It's not always so easy to say, okay, I'm going to let go. We have to go in and discern. Um, we have to spend some time discerning what's going on. But in the discernment, this discerning process that we're going through is not a discerning process to figure out what to do better later. If I figure out what to do better later, then I'll have this down and it'll be good. That's not what mastery is in this process. We just don't, um, we end up at mystery in the end. We have some ideas. You know, I, I'm going to read the first. Uh, Genjo Cohen's so good. The first paragraph of Genjo Cohen is just the best thing ever for me. So I just want to read something really quickly, and you've heard it before. As all things are Buddha Dharma, there is delusion and realization, practice, birth and death, and there are Buddhas and sentient beings. This is our everyday practice. This is what we do. We have a path, we do the path, we follow the rules, we do the forms, we do all these things. We look at ourselves, we effort. All of that happens. And we have to do it. As the myriad things are without an abiding self, there is no delusion, no realization, no Buddha, no sentient being, and no birth and death. If there isn't a separate being to which something is happening, how can all of those things we think we're doing and taking part in really there at all? That all goes away. That's the clearing of the decks that we know um, at that point that everything we got caught up in, and we have these in little increments, this particular karmic thing I used to get caught up in, I now see as kind of not, there's no there there, and I'm not caught up in it anymore. So this doesn't happen in like one big, and then it's the next big, and then it's the next big. It's happening in little ways all the time. Most of it, unconsciously, in the mystery and in the body, outside of our even understanding, we don't even know what's happening. We're just committing to the practice and committing to the practice and committing to the practice, and something is unfolding. So there's no delusion, no realization, no Buddhas and no sentient beings, no birth and death, no division. So all of that discernment that we do in the practice brings us sometimes, in little ways, to realizing that we were kind of, way, in some way we were both wasting our time with that discernment, and we needed to do it at the same time. It was both necessary and illusory. But then, this is the great part, the Buddha way is basically leaping clear of the many and the one. Thus there are birth and death, delusion and realization, sentient beings and Buddhas. 
We have to go back into the world. We have to live our karmic lives. Whatever the realization is about our karmic lives, we have to live them completely. This one, only this life. And the other thing that I think happens that I think I, I love East Asian Buddhism in particular for is the capturing of the poignancy of this realization. The capturing of the <coughs> preciousness of one's life when we're no longer addicted to our karma. When we're no longer grasping it. That there's something that becomes really precious about everything. And it's not to say it was good. Not to say I even want it. But it's formative and it's a part of now and it is a part of what forms me and it is a part of who I am. And in no longer doing this with it, pushing and pulling with it, even in the feelings that are painful, there is love. Even in Dukkha itself, even in all the confusion, there's love. There was love, there is love, there is love. Hard to believe, sometimes. And so, the paragraph ends after there's this big realization of, I'm going to bring insight back into the world. So the insights that happen during this time, whether they be around karma or whether they be around the nature of mind, to put it in the language that Paul Hallard once said to me, until your insights affect the way you set down a cup of tea, it doesn't matter. And that is our tradition. Until our insights affect the way we treat each other in the world, they do not matter. They are a waste of the gifts of the universe. Nice that they happened, but now they need to get into the body and into the behavior and into the movement of us through our lives. That's why we do this. That's why we do this crazy thing of sitting still for day after day after day after day after day. Is um, bringing this into our lives. And so the last sentence, yet... An attachment blossoms for, I'm all, I always hope I can read it without the glasses. Um, yet in attachment blossoms fall, and in aversion weeds spread. Now I've heard this talked about in a couple of ways. Yet in attachment blossoms fall, and in aversion weeds spread. Two ways I've heard this talked about, and I like them both. Um, one is, even with all this insight, the minute we're attached to the blossoms of our practice, they fall. The minute we're averse to the weeds of our life, they spread. No matter what insight comes along, no matter how deep it is, it doesn't matter. You're not at some past some finish line where that no longer is relevant. That's one way. The other way is just in the poetry, 
the recognition of the poignancy of this life. That blossoms will fall and weeds will spread. And that we will be fully present for that over and over and over and over. That's the call of the Bodhisattva. Not to get better than life or above life, but to be extremely good at being in life. There will be a taking of the precepts tomorrow, right? Tomorrow. And for me, I think that this vow is a commitment to seeing, to a life of discernment, to a life of paying attention. It's a commitment to all beings and to... um, to their liberation, even though our vows are impossible. And also really to this roar of love. To the part the aspect of love that without without being deluded for a moment of the possibility of stripping the world of dukkha or pain, certainly not pain. And this is, this for me is the, 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 um, the paradox of the feeling, the paradox of the communication, the paradox of that speech of love, which is without being fooled for a moment that there's going to be some end, it still says enough. Enough with the harm that we cause each other. Enough with the harm we cause ourselves. Enough. I have no idea what I'm doing, and I'm going to devote myself completely to the end of that harm, even though it probably can't happen. And so that, to me, is the, um, that's, where conf- that's where the confidence turns. That's where there's no, there's simply the devotion to meeting the harm of the world again and again and again, to meeting the suffering of the world again and again and again, in discerning it and understanding it more deeply again and again and again. And it is not my little tiny self that meets it. It is the whole of life that meets it. Once I'm out of the way. So let's continue sitting not 
don't try to get out of the way. That doesn't work. But notice how we're in the way. And trick ourselves all kinds of ways into thinking we're out of the way and putting ourselves in the way again. And when we can, trust love. Just trust it completely. I just don't think that will ever, it might be hard to do, if we put the love on a particular thing that we trust, that will certainly fail us. Sometime. But if we trust love as the whole of being, I, I don't think that's going to fail us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.